Welcome to the Higher Ed Jobs Podcast. I'm Andy Hebel, the Chief Operating Officer and one of the co-founders of Higher Ed Jobs. And I'm Kelly Sherwin, the Director of Editorial Strategy. Today, we are fortunate to have Jonathan Fansmith, who is the Senior Vice President, Government Relations at ACE, which is American Council on Education. Jonathan directs ACE's comprehensive efforts to engage federal policymakers on a broad range of issues, including student aid, government regulation, scientific research, and tax policy. His work involves representation before the U.S. Congress, administrative agencies, and the federal courts. Fansmith plays a central part in developing public policy positions that impact all colleges and universities, furthering ACE's historic role in coordinating the government relations efforts of approximately 60 associations in the Washington-based higher education community. Thanks, John, for joining us today. Yeah, Kelly, Andy, thank you so much for having me on. I'm I'm very happy to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Good. So are we. So let's dive in with the first question here. So we know everyone is busy. We're all stretched with different commitments, time, energy, bandwidth. But with all this going on, why should people in higher ed be concerned about education policy? Why should people care about the thing I spend my entire life working on? Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I might have a few answers, but no, seriously, uh, like I, I actually really get it. I, I talk to a lot of people outside of DC all the time too. And it is a really tough time to get people concerned and interested in what their federal government's doing because we're in a really kind of ugly political climate. It's it's very partisan. It's very bitter. It's those things in ways that we've seen this over time, but it's really gotten, I think, worse for especially people who work in this all the time have noticed. So you can say, you know, you look at what's happening in Washington. I get why people look at that and say, I just, I don't want to deal. I have enough stress. I have so many other obligations. Why would I devote time to this? But why it matters, why you know I care about it, why the people I work with care so much about and work on it, is it really does impact the day-to-day existence of colleges and universities. And especially if you work on a college or university and you work on a campus, you're probably surprised how much federal policy impacts your day-to-day. It really does change things like how much staff are getting paid or how much they will get paid, what kinds of training or what legal responsibilities you have within your institution, how they're staffed to address requirements from the federal government. You know, we saw the Supreme Court recently change fundamentally the way we do student admissions and what can be considered in that role, particularly scientific research, a big component of what our institutions do. Federal government pours a lot of money into that, but they also dictate what they want research, the terms on which they want it research, where they're prioritizing different types of research. So every day, the federal government is impacting what a college or university is doing, and particularly an individual's role. So it doesn't really matter what institution you work at or what area of the institution you work in, this is stuff that impacts you. And, you know, I should say, part of your question too is how can people keep up with this? Again, it's hard. Uh, I just talked about a huge range of issues. People who aren't familiar with federal policy, who might not be familiar with tax policy or all these other areas of policy, uh, it can seem very daunting to try and get engaged, to try and even follow it. There's a bunch of different things I would suggest. And I'll say at AC, I had a team that has 11 people working full-time on these issues. And even with people who live and breathe this stuff, who work full-time, this is their job, this is their responsibility. It's hard for us to keep on top of every single thing every day. There's constantly things happening. But there are things an individual can do that I think, especially if you're looking for that kind of information about what does this mean to me on my campus, I would suggest first and foremost, there are podcasts like yours. I'll also plug my podcast, which is .edu at ACE, that are industry-specific and give overviews of higher ed, you know, the trends and impacts within higher ed that are obviously worth following if these are your issue areas. 
but we also have other things. And I really recommend for your listeners, there are a lot of associations that are very specific to individual roles on campuses. And you know, the joke in DC is you probably, no matter who you are, or what you do, you probably have at least one person or organization lobbying on your behalf. You might have two or three in higher ed. That's definitely true. There are associations like mine that represent the entire institutions, but there's a lot of institutions that represent segments of the campus community, business officers or IT professionals or student financial aid administrators or HR personnel. Those organizations are a great place, depending on what your role is on the campus, to get information that's tailored to what is happening in Congress, what's happening in the administration, what does the new regulation mean in your specific line of work? What is the federal government saying you need to do differently or you need to start doing? They're really great source of information. Mail will make most of the resources available for free. They offer professional training, conferences, Highly recommend you reach out and find sort of who's out there representing you and what they have to offer. And then finally, you know, there's a lot of media. We're really lucky in higher ed to have two great sort of full-time higher education media sources with the Chronicle of Higher Education and Inside Higher Ed. They do a very good job of keeping track of what's happening on campuses, but also, and especially inside higher ed, what's happening in Washington and how that translates to the campus space. And then, of course, there's lots of politics-focused materials. Politico, the Hill roll call that let you kind of quickly scan what's going on in Washington and, you know, Washington Post, New York Times, places like that, that might give you some of that bigger overview. But really, I would say the associations do a great job of sort of tailoring content in a way that's accessible, that's at the level of what their members are looking for, uh, you know, more detailed on the things specific to them and more general on the broader trends worth definitely checking out. I think that's fantastic advice. We like to encourage our, our listeners and our readers to always, you know, reach out to their association. So thank you for bringing that up. So I want to mention that I was able to tune into your webinar yesterday and there were some issues that you discussed. So my next question kind of goes into one of the topics that was discussed yesterday. So as you just mentioned a few minutes ago, the government obviously has a lot of say in different policies. So one big thing that's going to affect a lot of campuses is the federal work study and the SEOG. Could you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And thanks for bringing that up too, because this is something we're really worried about. And I think people probably aren't paying as much attention to as they maybe should be. And it's part of this bigger issue that we're going on, which frankly, if you are not even directly following what's happening in Washington, you're aware of, which is we are having a huge problem in DC right now, figuring out how we're going to fund the government when the fiscal year starts on October 1st. And there's a lot of this that is business as usual in D.C. There's arguments between Democrats and Republicans. There's arguments between the House and the Senate. There's disagreements between the president and the Congress. All that's relatively normal. But we also have a dispute among just Republicans in the House that's really making it hard to figure out how we're going to fund the government. If we don't fund the government, we have a shutdown. And you know the impact of a shutdown in the short term for higher ed is not that meaningful. Most of the functions that the federal government does that institutions care about, grant funding will go out on schedule, institutional financial aid will go out. Really, if a shutdown lasts the way most of them last, which is a week or two weeks, not a huge period of time, you won't really notice it on your campus. If they start to get longer, and the longest one we've had was about 34 days, if they start to get into a longer stretch, what you'll begin to see is that some of those grants then will stop going out if they fall within that period. Some of the you know, research instructions, proposals won't be taken. There will be delays in your interactions with the federal government if you're looking for advice or trying to understand if you're complying with law. So we begin to worry about this when it starts to get a little bit longer term. But again, 
there's very little we can do about a shutdown. You talked about federal work study and the supplemental educational opportunity grants. Part of this dispute among Republicans in the House that I mentioned is how deep do you cut? There was an agreement on this big deal with Joe Biden about raising the debt ceiling. They sort of said, we're going to fund the government at this level. That was too much for a lot of Republicans in the House. And so what they were looking to do is make bigger cuts, about $160 billion more in cutting funding for government programs. Two of the things they proposed to get rid of were federal work study and supplemental educational opportunity grants. The reason we're really concerned about this is these are two big programs. Together, they're about $2 billion in funding that goes directly to student aid. They're also soon aid that doesn't have to be repaid. So unlike loans, you know, we've certainly heard a lot about affordability, about the student loan crisis. These are programs that actually allow students to afford college without having to repay anything when they leave. So we think this is absolutely the wrong place to be cutting from. But it's a reflection of when you have these big disagreements and people are looking to really, you know, slash funding overall. These are the kind of things that get tossed aside, even if this is short-term gain, long-term cost. So particularly given your audience, Federal work study. I, I don't know if any of you were were work study students. I was a work study student. You know, there were certainly a lot of offices I worked in where there were four or five of us, and it was not an insubstantial part of the team. So there were things that could be done simply because they had access to that workforce through that program. Uh, that goes away. That's going to create staffing needs on campuses. It's going to require reassigning duties. It would be a real challenge and twofold. You're harming the institution's operations and you're harming these students' chances of affording their education. So these are the kind of things that as you're digging in or as your listeners are digging in, they see these kinds of things, you know, reach out, speak up, talk to your members of Congress, say, this is a concern I have. People think there's nothing I can do. They actually do really listen to their constituents when they reach out. They track that. So making your voice heard may not see an immediate impact, but it matters. And the more people can do, the more we'll see these policies sort of held back. I'd actually also reinforce that with combining a previous topic we just talked about. A lot of associations make it easy for fly-in DAs for DC to come in for very important topics and meet with folks. A lot of that's happening virtually nowadays as well. Check your association that your profession really works closely with, and I think there's a lot of great opportunities there. Also, it kind of struck me, we're recording this, and most likely this is not going to play before October 1st. So if you're listening now, you can be laughing too. I can't believe they said this about what would happen October 1st. <laughs> if somebody does have a time machine now and is listening and you want to come back and help us correct the episode and make it right, we'd really appreciate it. You can come knock on the door right now. But this is one of these points where, yeah, we're a few days before October 1st. If that happens and it drags on, I think people are not only going to feel it here, but you're going to feel it in other areas. Sticking with some of these these more pertinent topics right now, there is also, for folks who work in higher education, there's some overtime threshold changes that have been spoken of on the Hill. Is there anything that you can add to that and how you think they may impact folks who work at colleges and universities? Yeah, and thanks for raising this, Andy, too, because I think certainly this is getting a lot of attention and it's outside of higher ed as well, because it's a rule change that's being proposed by the Department of Labor and it impacts all employers, right? This is not unique to higher education, but it's worth talking and looking forward to having this conversation, talking about how we are different and how the impact of this rule will impact us differently than other employers, in part because what we do on college campuses is such an incredibly diverse range of professions, some of which translate easily to other industries, 
many of which are very unique to higher education. But you know, I'm burying the lead a little bit here. What is happening is the Department of Labor has proposed a revision of what's called the overtime rule. And essentially, this rule, uh, it's been around for about 30 some odd years, used to get revamped every seven to nine years or so. Um, so not, not a very frequent revision. And really, what it's meant to do is say, look, you can't keep people at a certain salary threshold by saying that they're professional staff, but not pay them overtime, right? Pay them a very low salary and not give them overtime as a way of holding their income down. So the concept is you set a federal standard below which everyone should be paid on an hourly basis and entitled to overtime. There's certainly been examples in the past of organizations, not familiar with this in higher ed, but that have tried to suppress worker pay by paying very low salaries and demanding a lot of extra time. We have some concerns about what the proposal is. And just in short, a little quick history. In 2016, the Obama administration proposed raising the level from $24,000 to about $47,000 a year as that threshold. A federal court overturned it the next year and said they exceeded their authority. In 2019, the Trump administration said, well, we're not going to go to $47,000, but we will bring it up to roughly $35,000. That's where we are right now. The Biden administration, they've been considering this for a couple of years. We've been expecting this rule for a while. They just put it out. And what they said is we're moving that threshold from 35000 to 55000 uh, That's a 55% increase. Pause for a moment. As you and your listeners are thinking about this, think about how staff on campuses are paid, what that means. If you have people at or below $55,000, now needs to be considered an hourly employee. Now you need to budget for the provision of overtime when they work beyond 40 hours a week or 35 hours a week. This is going to fundamentally reshape how you look at your staffing, right? There will be certain positions that you likely will want to promote above that level so that they are not, they are exempt from the overtime considerations. There'll be other positions that are below that level that you'll say, I can't afford overtime for that. So we need to shift responsibilities. We need to shift people into different areas. Uh, you look at things like professional development, other areas that fall under their work time and say, this may not be affordable. Or I may not have a pathway forward given these restrictions. So there will be a huge impact on this. And we think particularly about people on the campus like student personnel administrators, admissions officers, folks who tend to, frankly, not be always the highest paid employees of an institution, but give a lot to those institutions and generally are very early career positions as well. So this will be a big deal. There's a few things about this rule. It doesn't apply to everyone. In fact, probably the biggest thing to know about it is the Department of Labor has always had what's called a teacher exemption. Uh, this applies to K-12, but it also applies to higher education. Essentially means if the primary role is as an educator, the bulk of your job duties is as an educator, this doesn't apply to you. So full-time faculty, adjunct instructors, uh, even coaches who the bulk of their time is spent instructing athletes in their work. So there's a big contingency of people on the campus it doesn't apply to, but particularly across the administrative and professional ranks on the campus, it absolutely would apply. They're thinking about this rule, the way the process works, the Department of Labor put out a proposal. They put that out a couple of weeks ago. Now they're listening to comments from the public. There's a formal process you can file online with the Department of Labor, what your thoughts are. AC does this as part of a group of higher ed associations here in DC. We're talking to them, we're talking to our campuses, we're gathering information. We're going to file comments. The deadline is November 7th, I think, but people might want to confirm that if they're planning to file any comments. I would just say you can support the policy. You can support this. You can have concerns about it. 
But what you should do is look at your campus and what this might mean. And it is, again, much like letting your congressman or your representatives know how you feel about cuts or other things, letting the Department of Labor know informal comments, how this will impact you, it really does shift the needle. They have to consider these things. They take it into account. That direct information from a campus means something to them. It informs what is a blanket policy, and it allows for them to maybe make adjustments, to make exceptions, to think about tweaks that can help translate this. The biggest thing I would say in terms of comments, this administration is saying when this rule goes into effect, 60 days. You have to make those changes within 60 days. I don't know about you, but at our organization, 60 days would be an incredibly rapid period of time to reevaluate all of our staffing structure, all of our compensation issues, and adjust that. And we're far, far smaller than a lot of colleges and universities. So you know, when you're talking, in some cases, tens of thousands of employees will be subject to this. 60 days is just not a reasonable time frame. So hopefully that's not too much detail on this rule, but it really is going to be tremendously impactful and, and something that, again, maybe gets buried in a lot of the noise that comes out of Washington. But for everybody working on a campus, this is likely to have an impact on what your day-to-day -day is. And just to be clear here, this this isn't something that's percolating in Congress and we need Congress to get their act together to pass. This is an administrative agency that's changing an administrative rule, and you're going to have 60 days to either comply or not be in compliance. Yes, that's exactly right. This is, you do not need the House and the Senate to vote on this. You do not need the president to sign this. This is something, it's a change in an existing requirement, change in a regulation that that federal agency, the Department of Labor, has sole authority over. So Really, the only way changes to their proposal get made is if they hear about the problems it will cause. And, you know, we're doing our best to highlight the problems where we see them. But the more people making that clear to them, better the likelihood of seeing the changes we'd want to see put to place. This doesn't necessarily have to go in there, but I'm laughing because nothing happens in 60 days on campus. I mean, you can't even order lunch in six, like 60 days. <laughs> you can't, yeah. Right. Try to plan a meeting in 60 yeah. days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Change your parking space. That's at least 90 days. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, so. I mean, I'm sure there's very nimble campuses out there, but yeah, I, in terms of revising your entire employment structure, 60 days is yeah. an absurd time frame. So, John, I know we talked about the federal work study, and, and we obviously just went over the overtime threshold changes. Are there other policies on your radar that our, our listeners should be aware of? Probably the other big one, and, and this is great. Like, you're letting me sort of hit my top three, and there are... I think three things that I spent a lot of time and my team spends a lot of time working on, I spent a lot of time thinking about because they're huge problems. And the federal funding is one, you know, in some ways it's hard to wrestle with it because it's so massive in scope and the debates are so specific to the way Congress relates to each other. The overtime rule has that immediacy of the impact. The other one, though, is mental health. And I don't think I need to explain to people that mental health on campuses is an area of incredible need. And it's really a tremendous mismatch with what the federal government is doing. Before the pandemic started, you know, we would survey our members. Our members are college presidents. We would serve them and say, what are you most concerned about? And overall, not even remotely close, mental health of students and mental health of staff were consistently number one and number two and 30 to 40 points above number three and number four. That was before the pandemic. The pandemic just turbocharged the problems in this area. And what we've seen is... Campuses are overwhelmed both by the demand for these services, the severity of the issues that they're dealing with, 
and the lack of resources that are available because everybody's experiencing the same thing. Everyone's competing for the same resources. It's really hard to staff these positions. It's really hard to find and retain and train people in these positions. The pipeline of people entering those fields, it's just not sufficient for the demand. And the federal government does very, very little in the space to help schools. They have one small program at the Department of Health and Human Services that gives competitive grants to institutions to implement programs, but it is by the scale of the federal budget, an infinitesimal investment. There really isn't a significant federal investment in addressing this problem. So there's lots of things we'd like to see the federal government do about that, that we've been asking the federal government to do. We're proposing different things in this area. The first one is bulk up that support, right? We know every institution has need in this area. Some institutions have really great and immediate needs. There are ways to increase the amount of federal spending here that would have an immediate impact on the quality of life for numerous students, numerous staff would be immediately impactful. There's some other things that where we have weird policy restraints, right? And I think the biggest one we think a lot about is telehealth. When the pandemic came on with the national emergency, there was actually a suspension of a lot of the rules, mostly state rules, but you know about access to telehealth services. And we saw a response. A lot of campuses, because that was something that was a service they could purchase, that was something they could bring in to immediately supplement when there are issues around hiring full-time staff or providing those positions. You know, they leaned into that and it supplemented what else they offered in a really helpful way. Unfortunately, the exemptions to the law when the national emergency went away in March, those exemptions went away as well. And now colleges and universities have a lot of legal barriers to using those services. This isn't to say you should not have counselors on the campus and you can go to telehealth. I think the experts would tell you a mix of models, a mix of different tools, things that reflect what your campus is and how they work. You should consider all of that. But not even having access to one of those options is certainly not helpful. So we'd like to see some changes in federal law that help address that and allow institutions to use all the tools that are out there to meet their students and their staff's needs. And then finally, I mentioned this before, we do not do a lot to help incentivize people to enter these fields, to train to be therapists, to train to be counselors, to train to be psychologists. You know, there are a few kind of specific programs the government offers. They're not particularly generous in terms of funding. And we can look at anyone, it's not higher ed, look anywhere in the society and people are saying this is the shortage of trained professionals in this area is having a real impact. So this is something that the government is perfectly suited to do, right? Like they can move resources on a national scale. They can provide things to make getting into these fields more affordable, make repayment of loans easier for people in these fields, really put an emphasis on when they put their finger on the scale, you see results. So we'd like to see the government doing just that, trying to get more people into these pipelines and moving their way through. In addition to the the folks who are currently there, I think at this point, prior to the pandemic, you had indicated it was a huge issue. The pandemic just kind of tipped the scales over. And the folks who are doing it, like many medical professionals now, they're just completely overtaxed past their mm-hmm. limits. So yeah, that is absolutely something that we've seen as well from institutions That's also indicative of the broader society right now. Yeah, I think that it's such a great point, too, because we talk about the mental health of staff. A lot of staff are working long hours. A lot of staff are committing themselves to that. Their needs, the stresses of the job, burnout, you know, this has been a regular point of discussion. We don't necessarily have the tools on hand to help address some of those things that, again, it's not just in this area, but it's across the institution where there's a real benefit or there could be a real benefit to students and the staff. I know you got your three, but I know we get notes from folks if we didn't ask you about this. Just real quick, 
as much as doing your best to call straight up balls and strikes here on this and not lean one way or another, where do you see stuff going with student loan forgiveness? I think if you spend a lot of time looking at this, it's become pretty clear that the Supreme Court really had the final say. The administration is going to take another crack at this and try to put a student loan forgiveness plan into effect. They're doing it by regulation, which uh, is kind of an interesting approach. They're going to actually, in the next month or so, announce a group of negotiators. Sort of a complicated process. We don't have to go into it, but part of the way the Department of Education at least develops regulations is first they bring in a bunch of stakeholders and they talk about the issue and they develop a proposal. They're going to have those negotiators representing different stakeholder groups come in. That is great. It's great to have this exercise. It's great to involve stakeholders. But the Supreme Court decision, if you read it, was pretty definitive. Uh, This Supreme Court is not going to support a loan forgiveness program. And in fact, when you read the decision, they anticipated the idea that the administration might pursue it through other authorities and essentially said, look, there is one fundamental underlying principle here. It's something that this Supreme Court particularly has created, which is called the major questions precedent. Not to bore people, but major questions precedent essentially says, if the federal government, the the administrative agencies, the president's administration, does something that's so big in scale or so impactful that it has to be beyond what Congress wanted them to do when they created the law, then it's unconstitutional. And that's what they said about loan forgiveness. They said, look, you can't just as an administration declare you're forgiving $400 billion in loans. That's not what Congress intended when they gave you this authority to modify loans. And the Supreme Court decision essentially said, that's going to be true no matter what vehicle you use to get there. So yes, absolutely, the Biden administration, their Department of Education, they're going to keep pushing on this. Partly, it's a great political issue for them, right? Like they want to be seen as fighting for borrowers on behalf. It's a winning political issue. Partly, they really believe that this will help a lot of people who need that help. It's not all political here in DC. There are lots of good intentions behind these policies too. But ultimately, as soon as they enact whatever they do, it will face an immediate court challenge. And the end result of that court challenge will wind up before a Supreme Court that essentially said, don't try this again. And here they are trying it again. So I think we can foresee what the outcome will be, how long that takes, how it wraps up, maybe a year, year and a half. But it is very unlikely borrowers will see the kind of forgiveness the Biden administration has been hoping to put into place. In addition to listening to the wonderful .edu podcast, how can our audience get involved with ACA if they're interested in higher education policy? A little bit tricky because I, I mentioned earlier, AC represents presidents. So a lot of the structure around what we do is focused on people at that CEO level or who are essentially on that leadership track to head institutions. But I say that we do a lot of different things. Um, we have obviously sort of things like the podcast and live session that are ways to interact directly with us, to hear from us. That's great. There's a lot of informational things we make available. We also have a really robust programmatic side, and that applies to people at all different levels. So we have things for chief academic officers. We have people, you know, I mentioned aspiring to the presidency, but earlier in their career, the fellows program is sort of a longstanding, relatively famous within higher education circles, pathway to the presidency uh, that people can participate in. And then there's other things around leadership development, around international education, around things like credit for prior learning or areas of policy or research where there's institutional practice, where we're looking to examine that. We're always looking for ways to engage with institutions, learn more about what work they might be doing, use ways to amplify good examples. I'd say first, give us a quick scan, see if there's something out there that interests you. 
And particularly if there's something that doesn't apply to you that you think is worth doing, reach out. That can be to me, that can be to anyone. We really do try to keep very close contact with our members, try to keep our finger on the pulse of what's happening in higher education. But there's gaps, right? We hear things, we see where we've had a little bit of a blind spot and, and, and we can address that. So just easiest way to do it, reach out. But first, look and see if we've already got something that covers your needs. Thank you so much, John. Thanks, John. It was so nice talking to you today. And, and no, thank, thank you. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> um, maybe we would do it. Yeah, no, I was just going to say thanks for having me on. But <laughs> maybe We should probably redo that. We're all laughing over each other. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was just going to, on a side note, say that we are fans of the fellows program. We actually just did a piece a couple of weeks ago, interviewed some previous fellows. So it, it oh, is great. a great program. So again, thank you so much for being here today. We really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for having me on. I really enjoyed the conversation. Look forward to following more episodes. Go go back and check out that fellows episode too. So uh, great talking with you both. Thank you all for listening. If you have questions for us or thoughts about this episode, please feel free to email us at podcast at higheredjobs.com or tweet us at higheredjobs. Thanks for listening. <laughs>